Hey, what's happening, people? Welcome to the 99th episode of The Influential Communicator, which is kind of insane when I think about it. I mean, we started the show in February 2022, and it's nearly been two years, man. That's kind of insane. And to celebrate 2024 approaching and to celebrate this milestone, I wanted to re-release an episode which has been one of my favorite. And when I say episode, I really mean conversations. And the person who really made it super impactful is Rachel Koblick. And early this year, I had her on to talk about how to ask thought-provoking and intentional questions. And I think that's really a lost art in today's world where often we focus on being so interesting that we forget to be interested in the human being that's in front of us. And today's episode is going to help you do exactly that. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Honestly, one of my favorite conversations this year. And I'll see you on the other side. So many people hate their own response to the following question. So what does your company actually do? Because in this moment, my friend, you have three options, okay? Number one, pitch slap your prospect. Number two, fumble your way through a long-winded response. And number three, deliver a punchy elevator story that sparks intrigue. Now, if you're nodding your head at number three, but you're like, hold up, I don't even know where to begin, then hey, don't worry. I've got your back. All right, head on down to www.theravirajani.com forward slash your elevator story to unlock your very own free elevator story script, template, and guide. Welcome to the Influential Communicator Podcast, where my mission is to help B2B salespeople sell more by becoming authentic storytellers and impactful communicators without suppressing who they truly are or their values. I'm your host, Ravi Rajani, and without further wait, Let's get into it. I'm very interested in pushing boundaries and helping people reach their full potential. If you head over to Rachel Koblick's about section in her LinkedIn profile, that's exactly how she describes her overarching mission with everything that she touches. So by day, she's helping companies make the most of the digital economy that we live in today through designing learning programs at scale. And by night, people, she's building raised beds and chicken coops with her partner over in New York. Now, the first time I actually connected with Rachel, for me, there was one thing that was super clear. She's a heart-centered leader who deeply cares about other people. None of this fake stuff. You could see the authenticity and smell it from a mile off. And that's exactly why I suppose today I've pinned her down to talk to us about how to ask intentional and powerful questions that inspire action. And I'm not just talking about in business and in sales. I'm also talking about life. Rachel, what's good, my friend? How you doing? (laughs) Hi, Robbie. That was a wonderful intro. Thank you for that. Thank you for having me here. It's super exciting. Well, listen, everybody else is busy, so... Fair enough. I'm a filler. I'm a filler. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you're not. You're not. You are. You are somebody <laughs> who I don't know. You booked some time with me. God, probably about six weeks ago. So, 
Long time coming, my friend. Long time. But listen, I think I know a lot about your story, but the audience, I want them to get a little insight into your world behind the curtain. So what's one moment in your origin story that you think people need to know in order to get more context on the person that you are today? That's a great question. Very on topic for our podcast. I feel like there are a lot, but maybe one that I'll pick that I think speaks to this particular topic is the moment that I went to college. So throughout high school, I had studied science and math for the most part and had this idea that I would go to university and continue down that path of doing science and math. And when I got there, I remember like sitting in the gym because this was what, 25 years ago, and we had a paper course catalog and flipping through it and seeing all of these courses. And I was like, I don't want to do science and math. Like, what if I did anthropology or philosophy or writing or theater or French or Italian or like geophysics and astrophysics and all these different things? So, and that really speaks to who I am. It's like, one, I constantly question my path and I've always questioned my path. And the other is I'm very interdisciplinary. Like my whole life has been very generalisty, and I've done a lot of different things all over the place. And I think that has made me kind of who I am. And I think that's very much one of my strengths, actually. What if I paired you and I up, right? Our 17-year-old selves choosing what we were going to do for our degree. Here's what I did. I secretly wanted to do psychology, but I said, okay, which degrees have the highest likelihood for rock star graduate salaries once you leave? Okay, economics, so I can get a job in investment banking. Tick. Like it, it was like, it was such a different procedure. But secretly, I was like, hmm, what about psychology? But back then, in hindsight, that's that's what happened. But back then, I was like, yeah, man, obviously, like, you know, you want to get the best job, paying you the most money. And, you know, my ego and status unknowingly was leading me towards something that, hey, in the end was out of alignment, but I needed to experience that season of my life, you know? Well, that's actually hilarious to me because my I was at literally the opposite. Like, I was not thinking about my future. I was not thinking about money. I was not thinking about, like, what... I, I never even took Econ 101. I ended up as a history major, and it's like, it's actually very useful, but at first it doesn't feel like it's that useful. When you say it's useful, what's one thing that you learn from a history teacher or the actual theory that you still use in some fashion today? Well, so I actually think it's less about what you learned, but how you learn to think. You know, I think what they say about liberal arts, and I fully support it, is that it teaches you critical thinking in a way that is really, really valuable for you the rest of your life, no matter what you do. You know, I think in many ways, honestly, history teaches you to ask questions, right? And so, yeah, I think it's a way of thinking more so than like a particular fact. So true. And it's storytelling at its finest, really, you know. It is. Different stories about different cultures and the past, which have shaped the future. And also that sometimes there's a specific narrative spin. But hey, anyway, listen, I'm done. I'm getting away from this. <laughs> Get away from the damn topic. Yeah, exactly. And I'm also edging into areas that I have no clue about, so I don't want to talk about it. So (laughs) if I was with you last year, right, 12 months ago, and you and I were doing this podcast, what's one question you wish I would have asked you if we were doing this show back then? A year ago? Yeah, 12 months. 2022. March 2022. What do you wish I would have asked you back then and why? 
That's a really tough question to ask. I'm trying to put myself in my mindset. I had just started, I was two months into Pavilion. Oh, yeah. As their, yeah, as their VP of Learn. Uh, so it was early days there yet. I probably would want to talk to you about like the meaning of life or something like that. I feel like everything in my world kind of backs up to <laughs> yeah, yeah, backs yeah, up to yeah. those big issues of like why, why are things the way they are? Why are we here? That kind of thing. Do you remember our first conversation? I do. I actually remember our first ever Zoom call. Do you? Remind me what we talked about. So we connected on LinkedIn because I was about to do a storytelling course for Pavilion for all of their salespeople. Okay. And we were on a call and we were talking about like your previous job, what you wanted to do. It was all like, go, 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 go. You had like a million things being thrown at you. And I think that's when our friendship really began was from that one call. You don't remember it. So clearly it wasn't that memorable, people. Rachel's <laughs> face is like, uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I can't remember that call. Well, I just remember, I mean, I just remember liking you immediately. You know, you're the kind of, honestly, you're the kind of person who makes somebody feel like they're your, you're their best friend from the get-go. And it's always been such a joy to work with you. And I always wanted to do everything I could for you because you're such a, you're such a delightful human. And I was not paid to say this. Well, I was going to say the advert is actually in the middle of the show, but hey, listen, ladies and gents, uh, if you click the link in the show, no, I'm messing, I'm messing. But no, seriously, thank you. That that honestly means a lot, especially coming from you, because I know how intentional you are. And I appreciate you for acknowledging me for that. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. And you know, it's funny when it comes to connecting with people like we have, I think it's all boiled down to our ability to listen to one another, ask questions, genuinely be curious. And I don't think you can fake that, but it's funny because, and I wanted to talk to you about this. I was listening to a podcast with Simon Sinek on it last week, and he was on a show with a dude called Stephen Bartlett and the podcast was called Diary of a CEO. And this blew my mind, Rachel. He said that one of the feelings that he's been experiencing recently in his life is loneliness. And it boiled down to this feeling of often feeling misunderstood. And it led to the conversation that often with friendships and even in society, and I'm paraphrasing, but we're so used to prescribing advice versus he called it deeply sitting in the mud with somebody by truly listening, asking questions and just being there for somebody. It's just a lost art. It's the idea of truly holding space for somebody. It hit me so deeply that episode because often I think that's one of the reasons why I often feel misunderstood by certain friendships because they're prescribing versus deeply listening. So for you, why do you think as a society, we just want to prescribe solutions versus listen and ask deep questions? I feel like there's a couple of potential reasons to that. So one, I will say I'm reading a book right now called A More Beautiful Question by Warren Berger. And it's an incredible book. I think you should read it if you haven't. But one of the things he talks about in there is that you know, as kids, they've actually done studies to show that preschool children ask their parents and teachers hundreds of questions a day, literally hundreds of questions a day. And then by the time that they get to grade school, middle, middle school, that's pretty much fallen off a cliff. Because what our education system values is giving the right answer, right? There's one person in that room who can ask questions. It's the teacher, the teacher's in power. They ask you a question and your right answer gets a reward. You're not rewarded for asking questions, right? And being curious. And so I think that conditions a lot of us 
throughout over the years to value that, providing answers as opposed to questions. And I think, I mean, I think the other part of that too is that we are all relatively egocentric, right? And that's just a trait of being human. We think about ourselves a lot. We're worried about what people are thinking of us. And I think a lot of that is because as we're talking to people, we're not really listening. We're kind of more thinking about what am I going to say next? Or, you know, what do I say to sound smart or all of that kind of stuff? I love the first point because it really directs us to driving the right behavior in accordance with, no, actually a better way of putting it is, let me give you an example. If a sales leader has a comp plan, which rewards booked meetings, then people don't worry about qualified meetings. Well, I booked a meeting, whether it's good or bad, who cares, right? But depending on what's rewarded, you're going to drive certain behaviors. So that's so interesting. So are you saying that if Rachel went to go be a teacher today, she would go and reward kids for asking thoughtful questions. Is that what you is that what you would do? I absolutely would. I would structure the whole lessons around them asking questions and and reward the curiosity as opposed yeah. to the right answer. It's funny because I think often, which leads into point number two, is we're scared to ask certain questions at the fear of looking stupid because we feel like I should know that by now. It's funny, I had a boss who said to me, well, kind of a boss, but a manager who said to me when I first entered the world of sales, he was like, listen, man, ask all the dumb questions. Ask every question now because you don't want to be the person in three years who's scared to ask the question because they didn't ask it three years ago. And it really stuck with me, but I think there's that fear of judgment, right? There is that fear of judgment. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think especially too, that's modeled by leaders as they as they rise in the business world, I think, especially new leaders, when you get into leadership, you feel like you have something to prove. You feel like you should be the one with the answer, right? It takes a certain amount of courage and humility to get to a place of leadership and ask questions, right? And admit that you don't know something or ask the dumb question. So I think to your point there, it's like there's a certain aspect of modeling that's required. And again, like getting comfortable with the fact that like you you don't know everything and yeah, you have to ask questions. And I think what you just mentioned there boils down to the inner work that a person has done. And I'm talking about whether it's coaching, whether it's therapy, whether it's hypnotherapy, whatever medium that somebody wants to do to work on their shadows, work on that part of their story, which needs more healing. I think the more comfortable somebody is in their own skin, there's often less noise in their minds. And as a result, it gives them the ability to be truly present and listen. But that's just my take. What do you think? Oh, I 100% agree. 100% agree. I think one of the things about questions is that I feel like it's been shown that folks with high EQ or kind of high emotional intelligence ask really good questions. That's all about self-awareness, you know, and being able to self-regulate. And that comes with knowing yourself and doing that work to understand who you are and what you value and you know, what are your strengths and shortcomings and all of that kind of stuff. So, and I think especially as, you know, there's tons of writing out there about self-awareness and leadership. That's a super important aspect. And some of the most self-aware people are, some of the most successful leaders have been shown to be the most self-aware. So I 100% agree with you. So speaking of successful leaders, you know, you've led teams at different periods in your career and in different seasons of your life. What are a few impactful questions that you would ask some of your team in one-to-ones to get them thinking differently 
by teaching them how to think, not what to think. Hmm. So one of the questions that I was thinking about recently that I would ask in one-to-ones, but I would also ask in interviews as I was interviewing people to understand, to get to know them a little better and how they think, I would ask them, you know, to tell me about a time when X, Y, or Z did this, or, you know, my report might be telling me about a project they're working on. Then I would say, okay, well, how would you do that differently next time? And I think one, in an interview that tells you, usually you want the person to say, oh my gosh, absolutely. I think about this a lot. Like here's, here's X, Y, and Z, what I would do differently. And that kind of shows you that they are reflective and self-aware and constantly looking to improve. But I think that, you know, also kind of teaches people to reflect and be metacognitive and look back on what they've done and diagnose, kind of dissect that and figure out what they would do differently next time. It's really interesting you say that. So one of the things I like to do with coaching clients or if I'm doing some hot seat coaching on causes is exactly that. My version of that is asking somebody, what's one thing that you loved about that story that you just shared and they like uh i never think of that because the mind always goes to and it's feedback the negative right so they have to really deeply search for i did this well and own it and the ability to own some of your superpowers is actually really tough for people right and then go to exactly what you said of what would you do differently and then get them to run that exercise again so i love what you said there super powerful and you know when it comes to somebody answering that back to you, I would have done this differently. Well, how do you know that they truly mean it? And how do you get them to embody it, embody that lesson instantly? Is an, do you get them to do an exercise? Like what's your go-to? Hmm. I think it's just like continuing, continuing to ask follow-ups on that and following them down that path. And again, I think it is all about the question versus responding with, oh, I agree, or here's how I would have done it, right? That that kind of giving them your perspective. But I think there's just something really special about kind of continuing down that path of questions with them and supporting, kind of seeing where their thought path wends and kind of helping them work towards a better observation and understanding of, you know, their kind of internal processes. What are some on that point then of internal processes and getting people to actually create real change? What are some questions that you wish leaders had asked you during your time in different career paths? Like, is there certain questions where you're like, man, I really wish they'd asked me this looking back because it would have helped me think about this differently. What I'm trying to do here is for the audience is now get some scripts or templates or questions that they could ask if they were in the similar situation with some of their team members? I feel like at various points in my career, I have felt like I have been at companies and in roles where had somebody taken enough interest in me that I would have stayed there for the rest of my life, you know? And so I I do think it's Oh, wow. I've kind of always been all over the place and like, maybe this is going to be, you know, the right place for the rest of my life or maybe, maybe not. But so I, I think there's importance in just asking your, your people questions that help develop them, right? Like, where do you want to be? Where do you want to go? What do you like about this job? What don't you like about this job? Where, what are you working on? What, what can I help you work on? That kind of stuff you know, what elements of this job do you like and what don't you? I think that that kind of question as an employee, I would have valued from my leaders. You know, I think 
I've joined companies where I felt like people have asked me those kind of questions, not just, okay, like what, what do you want to get paid? But like, where are you going to go with your career? And how can we help you? Like, how can coming to this company help you do that? And how can I help you as, as your leader? I think that kind of thing. So it sounds as though from what I'm hearing is it's around getting to the root cause of what somebody actually wants as an individual versus what you want for them. And then finding questions to figure out how as a leader you can get them there? Yeah. Yeah. I think to your point earlier, it's like just to be, to feel heard and respected, you know, and to somebody to ask the kind of questions that show you that they're listening and they care about you as an individual and a, a human, as opposed to the generic, you know, like, here's what I'm supposed to ask for professional development type questions. Well, speaking of, here's what I'm supposed to ask. You be on the <laughs> you 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 you've been on the podcast circuit, right? So, what is one question that a podcast host has never asked you, and you wish they did? Oh my gosh, Robbie, you're like coming with the hard questions here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I suppose what's one part of your story that you wish you had the opportunity to talk more about? I'm interested in learning and talking about who people are. You know what I mean? So as a leader, if I have a team retreat, you know, I'll tell them a little bit about who I am and my past. I'm very interested in people's origin stories. You know, I love talking to people about how their families came to, well, I live in the US, so how they came to the US or Canada or, or UK or wherever you're from. I think like that kind of path is interesting. So to me, it's like some of the stuff around why things are the way they are and why people are the way they are. Those kinds of questions are always really interesting to me. So I think, you know, I'll give you one example. One part of my story too that I didn't talk about is I have always been young. I started kindergarten when I was four I, and my birthday was in December. I skipped a grade in grade two. I did the first half of grade two and second half of grade three. I went to Princeton when I was 16 and I graduated what? when I was 20. <laughs> hold, on. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Time out. I didn't know this. Well, hold on. So you were meant to go to Princeton at 18, right? Is it the same in the US where you go to university? Yeah. Right. And how did it happen that you snuck your way in at 16? Do I need to do more Google research? And am I going to find like prodigy child, prodigy child, prodigy? I don't think so. It was just, again, it was just like, cause I started school early and then I- okay. I accelerated at some point. And so I just finished high school when I was 16 turning 17. But the big point here is like, not, not I'm, I'm a prodigy and yay me. It's more like that has really, that has impacted the way that I see the world. You know, I have always felt like I have had something to prove, like that I had to show that I could kind of like run with the big kids, you know what I mean? And so I just think that's like an, that's it's been a defining feature, I feel like, of my life and career. Oh, so hold on. So are you saying that interestingly, because you accelerated so much at different points in your life, being the new kid or the younger kid in all of these groups, instead of saying, Hey, I belong here, people, and I'm younger than you, ha ha ha, it led to oh, actually, I've got something to prove to show I actually belong here. So what's, given that pattern that occurred in the early years of your life, what's one thing you took from those moments which you think worked against you when you entered the world of work? 
I mean, I think it's just, it's led to a pattern of underconfidence. Honestly, like I think it feeds the imposter syndrome. I know a lot of people have imposter syndrome, whether they're young or not, but I do think it's, it's, you know, taken me 20 years of professional data points to really truly believe that I am a good leader and I can start a business and, you know, I'm competent and can do things. So yeah, I think it's just, it created, it created a pattern of underconfidence, which probably served me partially well, but also it probably held on to for longer than needed. Can you tell me about the moment when you realized you didn't need to hold on to it any longer? (laughs) I guess the real answer is like, I'm not sure that I have actually reached that. I mean, I think it's like you continually reach different parts of that spectrum, right? Like, you know, it was like the first time you manage someone, you're like, oh my gosh, how do I manage? And then like, you know, a couple of years down the road, you're like, I got this managing thing maybe. And then it's like, oh, then there's the moment where you're like, oh, I'm running a team and have to create a budget and manage salaries and, you know, capacity planning. And you're like, how do I do this? And then you figure it out. So there's always going to be the next thing that you're not sure if you know how to do, or you're not, not sure you have the confidence to be able to do. So hmm. just further down the spectrum. I see you on that. When is something 100% gone? I think it's more about you go deeper. You have the tools to deal with it. Sometimes it pops up, but you've learned your lessons. So I, I think it's a journey, actually. Just like you said, it's a better way to put it, actually. It's a, it's a, it's a really good point. Really good point. Cut, pause, or whatever we need to say for me to get your attention. Because before we get back to the show, I have some breaking news. Okay, listen, ladies and gents, feature selling is dead. And story selling is alive because if you really want to build trust, stand out and close more deals in a recession, then you need to try something new so you can drive your company to a world of efficiency and profitability. And that's exactly why I've opened up many slots this year for different companies to partner with me for implementing my story selling framework inside of their sales process. Now, the outcomes are all the good stuff. I'm talking about increasing average order value, collapsing time inside of your sales cycle and driving win rates. But more importantly, transforming your team to sell in a way that really focuses on human connection. And hey, that's what I'm all about. So if you're nodding your head right now, then head on down to www.theraviregiani.com forward slash contact to book your complimentary discovery call to see if there's alignment. And hey, if there is, great. And if there's not, that's cool too. I'll see you on the other side. Can I ask you a question, Ravi? No, this is my damn podcast. You can't ask me anything. All right? You don't ask me anything, man. I'm messing around. I'm messing around. Yeah, of course. Ask me. Hit, hit, me, uh, hit me up. And if it's too hard, I'm just going to edit it out anyway. So no, I'm, joking. I'm joking. Yeah, hit me. So you've had a lot of guests on your show over the years. Yeah. What's something that you wish your guests have asked you? So the podcast has been going just over a year. So I'm pretty, I'm not sure how many episodes this is now, but we're probably just under 70 at this point. I think what's, what question I wished a podcast guest has asked me is a question. It's just a question. And I'll tell you why, (laughs) because often what happens in podcast scenarios is we see interviewer versus interviewee versus interviewer with interviewee. So it's often becomes a, I think, a guest. And by the way, we've all all done this, me on podcasts and whatnot, but I'm just something I actively try and do now where I go, well, what about you? 
Like, tell me about you. What part of your story where X, Y, Z? Because they don't expect it. It leads to an authentic conversation and it just opens it up to be more collaborative. So in response to your question is just a question, right? Like, what about you? Tell me more about that. It's just a question, I would say. Yeah. One of the things that a boss once told me, we used to, I used to work in learning design. I would work with universities and colleges to put their degrees online and would work with professors to kind of create content. And sometimes they would choose to do interviews. They would have a guest come come in to interview on a particular subject or something like that. And so we would talk about like interviewing as a skill, right? And the best interviews are conversations. They're not just kind of in this. Yeah. And I think there's a give and take. This actually reminds me of, there's a study by Gong, you know, Gong, the sales tool. Everybody knows Gong. Yeah. Great. So there's a study by Gong that they looked at 500,000 sales calls to see what are some of the habits of top salespeople. And they found that questions were correlated with the salespeople's conversion rates, but there was a sweet spot. It was like 11 to 14 questions was the sweet spot. Anything over was like a point of kind of diminishing return. But they also found that the best salespeople, they don't just front load their questions, right? It's like discovery must ask questions. Now let us move to like demos and like presenting and me telling you about things. They would intersperse the questions throughout the conversation. And I think you could say that's probably the same for podcasts and interviews and other forms of conversation, right? It's like, that's a natural pattern. It's not just one person asking another question after question after question. Yeah. And I think what's fascinating is, I can't remember where I heard this and I don't know if it's a hundred percent true, but I wouldn't be surprised if it is, but Tim Ferriss has an interview coach. Like he has somebody who listens to his podcast episodes and says, you know, that bit there, you could have gone deeper. You, you you could have asked this. And I think that is fascinating. So that's really interesting. And I'd love to hear your take on this. So taking it to the sales arena, one of the biggest problems I see is people following methodologies and doing the following. So how long have you struggled with that pain? <laughs> and it's like, dude, it can feel like a box ticking exercise. So I think it's, yes, it's about asking questions, but I also think it's about the delivery but it's about knowing which question is appropriate and does it feel intuitively right to ask this question at this time? So for you, what's like your go-to process for when you're trying to build rapport with somebody, you don't just meet somebody for the first time and go, hi, what's your mother's name? Like, it's just weird, right? You, you just, <laughs> you wouldn't do that. So what, yeah, maybe you do, I don't know, but what's your process for asking questions to develop deep rapport in sales, business, and in life? I love that question. It's funny because you you just made the joke of like not, not going right in and saying, what's your mother's name? I do kind of like going deeper, quicker. Like I am not one for small talk necessarily. And I've always, every person, I, every like team that I've worked with, they always like laugh because it's like, you'll watch me at the beginning of a meeting kind of like dealing with five minutes of small talk before it's like, okay, let's get the meeting started. <laughs> Because I actually do, like, I love even people I've just met and I've been doing a lot of this, like going out to LinkedIn and like meeting random people and scheduling a Zoom chat. And I want that conversation to be on something more profound, even the first 30 minutes that we talk than, than just, you know, like, what do you do? And what's, you know, uh, just the basic conversations. So and it's, a little, it's a little bit like kind of counter, but I like to go deeper a little bit faster. 
I like that actually, because it's counterintuitive and I'm going to offer a different perspective and then I want to go deeper on your point. But do you think that there's a difference between precision and depth? So here's what I mean. Somebody could say, how have you been? Which I think with a deep friend, lazy question, period, lazy question versus last time we spoke, Rachel, you mentioned that one of your chickens was sick. How is she now? And how are you feeling about it? Right? So that's how are you? right? But it's it's that level of precision, which is still relatively surface level, but can make somebody feel seen versus, you know, you mentioned to me yesterday that you were going through that breakup and you couldn't sleep. Did you find a way to sleep last night? Like that's, there's a level of depth to that question because the answer will require a higher level of vulnerability. So it's like, I like the idea of precision, then depth, but I do agree with you. Like, the how's the weather and the surface level conversations, especially with friends. I just don't know if it's age. I don't know what's happening, but I'm losing the patience for it. What do you <laughs> think? Yeah. I mean, I do. Th- I think you're right. There's a difference. And I think the precise is really good because that again, demonstrates that you were listening, that you care enough to remember. Right. And so I think that precision is good in that way. I think regardless of how deep it is, I think you said this earlier, it's like you can tell when somebody is genuinely curious. I think it's the genuine curiosity that helps. So I have a, a colleague that I used to work with who I used to, <laughs> used to laugh at because I feel like everybody kind of knows it's like you should come at problems from a place of question, right? From a place of inquiry. And so you can tell when you're in some conversations with some people, and my friend does this when he's like tired and stressed, you can see him using questions as a tactic. And you can see him asking questions because he knows he should be asking questions as opposed to stating his opinion. Uh But like, I can tell that you are not genuinely curious about my answer, right? And so I think think one of the most important things is to muster that really genuine sense of curiosity about somebody else and the answer to their question. Oh, oh man, I've got two questions here. But the first one is, is how besides the tone and the reeling off questions, how can you personally tell if somebody is sincere with their questioning? I mean, I do think it's mostly probably the tone. I think when you get to know people, it is probably different from strangers and and friends too. Like when you get to know people, I feel like they have their little tells. I think the response, you know, we've all been in those conversations where it's like the person just responds in a way that you're like, you weren't even listening, were you? <laughs> or they ask a follow-up question is something, or that is something that you just answered, you know? So I think uh, yeah. that kind of thing can like point it out pretty quickly. I think the worst, one of the worst feelings as another person is when you are talking to somebody and they ask you a question, but they're on their phone or their eyes are darting around the room. Cause maybe, I mean, this could be this is more in person, but imagine being at a networking event and somebody's like, yeah, so uh, what do you do? What do you do? And their eyes are looking for, you know, the bar, somebody more interesting to talk to or whatever it could be. And that is, even though they've asked a question, their nonverbal communication has just crushed the entire opportunity for a friendship or relationship. A hundred percent. Along those lines too, I think there's also the, the sin of like constantly responding with your own story or example. And I know that can be a technique of like developing rapport too, to kind of show similarities, but I think that can also backfire, right? It's Mm. if you're not just listening to their story, 
and being with them and their story. And you're constantly coming back with, oh, that reminds me of a time I did this, or that reminds me of my problem here, or that reminds me of my thing there. I think that can kind of lead to this feeling of not fully being listened to as well. I'd say that's one of my biggest pet peeves is when you're talking to a friend, you say something and instantly it's, oh yeah, I've experienced that. I remember when da, da, da. it's like sharing a customer success story in a call way too early because what it sounds as though is you're trying to guide them towards your solution. Yeah. And it's it's the same, right? It's trying to be right. It's trying to guide people towards your version of success. And I just think when somebody says, man, that sucks, dude, that sounds challenging, bro. Like, tell me more. How are you feeling about that now? I just feel so much better. And then that can earn the opportunity for exactly what you said. No, I don't know. That's my pet peeve. What's your biggest pet peeve with questioning? No, I fully, I fully agree. I think that is definitely a pet peeve because it also, it kind of speaks of this mindset that your experience is representative of everybody else's. And that's a very kind of self-centered way, I think, of approaching the world too, right? Yeah. I actually have, it's funny, I have a doctor who will do exactly this. And I'm like, how are you mapping your experience in your life onto my experience right now? Just hear me and my story and please let's talk about my problems. So I think there's that, you know, I think like interrupting and talking over is a pet peeve, obviously. I think that's another big thing for me is getting used to like getting comfortable with silence. I feel like that's another good thing in questioning conversations. It's just like giving people the space to talk and finish and then really, really checking that they're finished before jumping in. You know, you don't need to fill the space. See what I'm doing there. Great job. (laughs) No, you're very, you're good at it. I can tell like throughout this conversation, I can see like you have mastered the art of giving your guest space. Oh, thank you, my friend. A constant work in progress. I have a friend called Jason. Every time I connect with him, he deeply listens and he just, he, there's never a worry of, I've got to speak like this because I know this person's going to interrupt me any second. It's just so easy to open up and it's just beautiful, man. It's, it's just such a cool thing. So if you listen into this dude, I'll never say it to your face, but you're very good at this. No, I would. I say it it all the time, man. I say it all the time. So listen, before we wrap up here, Rach, I'm not going to tell the audience the nickname that you've given me um, and that I've given you, but um, yeah, it's it's pretty strange. But anyway, uh, I digress. What's one question that you're asking yourself right now in this season of your life that you're secretly still wrestling with? You know, we've talked about a little bit about this in the past, but I think like, what is my definition of success? You know, I think so many of us are put on a track and are given goals and everything around us at our jobs in in the world kind of reinforce particular ideals and goals and definitions of success. And, you know, I think it's just recently I've, I've come to sort of take a step back and say, okay, but what actually is my definition of success? I don't know that it's a bigger title, more money bigger teams, better companies, more fame and fortune, you know, I think, I think it's a lot more to do with kind of peace and and happiness and helping people and, you know, putting, putting good things out into the world. So still working on that. Don't you think it's funny how I think secretly, well, actually my truth is that I believe that everybody is seeking inner peace whether they're chasing clout, whether they're chasing cash, bigger teams, health, whatever, the byproduct of all of that, they hope is inner peace. 
isn't it? But if you look at vision boards and whatnot, you've got the fast cars, the houses, the promotion, but you don't put a picture of yourself within a piece, do we? Yeah. It's insane. I find it just fascinating. It's fascinating. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. I was telling the story earlier, but I recently read an article in, I think it was the New York Times, but it was about Mark Benioff. And I've been reading a lot of books by Thich Nhat Hanh, who's like a very well-known Buddhist monk who's written a ton of books. Oh, really? Interesting. He, at some point, interviewed Mark Benioff and said, if you could have one or the other, what would it be? Happiness or success? And of course, Benioff in true Benioff fashion said something like both. Like he just could not come to choose. But I think even people who are seeking success, it's like success is in pursuit of happiness to your point, right? It's like, and I, I think happiness and inner peace here is, is kind of being used in the same way. But I do think that people who are seeking a lot of money, who are seeking fame and fortune, all those things, it's because they think that's going to ultimately bring them peace and happiness. I mean, I think we could do a podcast episode on this. Somebody can be, in my opinion, materialistic and they can be spiritual. Like if somebody's truly happy, is that not, would they not have achieved then success? Because you get what I mean? Like, I think sometimes we feel like happiness is disowning everything, like only just minimalism to its complete extreme. And we think it can't include excellence and being world-class at our skill set. Like, what? sorry, hold on. It can include that, but it may include alignment in other areas of your life as well. Like health shouldn't be sacrificed as a result of it. Maybe it's both of them. I mean, look, hey. I think we could talk about this for ages, but that's that's a that's a good question. Agreed. I mean, I, again, I think it's everything in moderation, right? Yes, and I think there's seasons in my life where there are the scales are tipped, right? But it's awareness of that and knowing what alignment actually looks like for me. That's the way I see it, right? Yeah, that's the way I see it. Hey, my friend, I'm gonna have to let you go, but the question is, is the show is called the Influential Communicator, so. Who do you look up to as an influential communicator that, hey, we might be able to get on this show? Don't say Beyonce or something. I can't get on this show. (laughs) Let's see. I've been doing a ton of reading recently. I will say I just read a series of books by Oliver Berkman, who's a journalist. He wrote 4,000 Weeks. I don't know if you've heard of this one, but he also wrote this book called The Antidote, uh, Happiness for People Who Hate Positive Thinking. (laughs) He just had such a great way with words. So I think he's a good one. Maybe he'd come on your show. Anne Bono. Do you know Anne Bono? No, never heard of her. Anne Bono is somebody I met through Pavilion, who is VP of Marketing at Penguin Random House Publishers. And I just love her. I love her posts on LinkedIn. So I feel like she could be an interesting one for you too. That's cool. I'll have to check her workout. That's cool. Awesome, my friend. Awesome. So listen, if people want to get a hold of your energy, where can they go to do that? I think at this point, LinkedIn is probably the best place to find me. Okay. LinkedIn. I connect to everybody. And I like to I like to randomly have Zoom coffee dates with people. <laughs> there you have it, right? Rachel's calendar <laughs> is open for virtual coffee dates every day, 30 minutes long, five appointments a day. How many coffee meetings have you had in like the past week with randomers? I bet I'm going to guess it's about eight. I want to say it's probably less than that. I've been trying to moderate as I am unemployed and spend my time away from screens and Zoom meetings, but (laughs) probably like four, four or five. I'm with you, my friend. I'm with you, my friend. That's uh, still a good amount though. One a day, hey. One a day keeps keeps the heart at bay is that a good phrase i don't know i just i just i just made i just made that up but um anyway ladies and gents yeah i need to work on that one ladies and gents listen if 
you got some value from today's show. If your energy feels whole and if you feel like, you know what, somebody else needs to listen to this episode, then here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to head on down to LinkedIn and take a screenshot of where you're listening to this right now, Spotify, Apple, all that good stuff, and head on down to LinkedIn and tag myself and Rachel and tell us what's one thing that you took away from today's episode and why. And I promise you that we will come back to you. I promise you we will come back to you. So I'll see you next week, same time, same place, and probably for another guest episode, maybe a solo, but hey, I'll let you find out. I'll see you soon. Peace. I have a question for you, my friend. And that question is, is what would it take to have you subscribe to the Influential Communicator podcast and leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice? Because I tell you what, my friend, my big mission is to help B2B sellers and all listeners of this show sell more by becoming influential storytellers and communicators without without suppressing their personality and disowning their value. So hey, the more the word gets out about this podcast, the more people we can gather on this mission. So if you could support me, then hey, that would be dope. And if not, that's dope too. Either way, I got love for you. All right, I'll see you on the other side.